0: Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Good afternoon, dear friends, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9 Chai FM. And we just fasted and prayed and now it's time to celebrate. One of the most exciting holidays in the year is finally here tomorrow. We get ready for sukkus. And for seven days, we're going to sit in the sukkah. We're going to shake our lulav and esrug. We're going to sing. We're going to dance. We're going to celebrate. We're going to enjoy seven days of wonderful, hopefully socially distanced parties or maybe physically distanced parties, but socially together and delicious meals. But what is sukkahs all about? Why are we so joyful? What are we celebrating? And today I invite you to join me for a discussion on the various themes of this beautiful, fascinating holiday. And the deep spiritual meanings that underlie this Yamthav of Sukkot that we're so looking forward to tomorrow evening to be celebrating. Let's look at some of the historical and the spiritual elements of the rituals of this Yamthav. And I think and hope if I could share with you some aspects of this Yamthav as I'm preparing for it and I could just share with you a little bit of, of my personal preparation for Sukkos, hopefully you could also gain an appreciation for the various traditions and unique and special themes of this holiday and really truly appreciate what we have to look forward to. So just a few days ago we were in Shul fasting Yom Kippur and now it's celebration time. So the celebration begins tomorrow night. Now, of course, because it starts on a Shabbos, and the first two days of each Yom always are sort of similar to Shabbos, but the first day being Shabbos, obviously, we're not going to be fulfilling all of, for example, we're not going to be shaking a little and of an ashrug, and Obviously the prayer is going to be a little bit different, but let's, let's go through some of the things. Let's in fact go through in a basic order of just understanding what it's all about. We have the first two days of Yom Tov followed by five intermediate days of Cholomayed and then concluding with Hashanah Rabbah on Friday and Shmini Atzeret and Simchastura next coming Shabbos and Sunday. So most Jewish holidays obviously celebrate Something specific, a specific event that happened in our history. Pesach celebrates the exodus from Egypt. Shavuos, we celebrate God's giving us the Torah on Mount Sinai. What does Sukkot celebrate? Sukkot is not a specific event. Sukkot celebrates a 40-year event. It's commemorating our ancestors' journey through the Midbar, through the wilderness, through the Sinai desert, all those 40 years. And during Sukkot. We're going to go out into our sukkahs and we're going to do everything in there. Obviously, there's different customs. Some only eat their meals there, some even sleep there. But how do we understand the link between the sukkah and the journey of our ancestors through the wilderness? Firstly, the sukkah reminds us of the miraculous Aname HaKavod, the cloud canopy That protected our ancestors from the desert elements during their journey. Imagine the heat. Imagine the arrows of enemies and the Jews were protected during that time by these clouds of glory. And so the sukkah reminds us of that. Also, our ancestors lived in these simple tents. And in fact, the verse says, Remember that in these tents, very similar to our temporary sukkah, that for 40 years our ancestors had to dwell in these tents. So the point of the sukkah is to remind us that we have to be grateful for our beautiful, comfortable homes that we live in. This is straight out of the Gemara, Tractate Sukkahs 11b, tells us this. The sukkah reminds us that we are in Hashem's hands. And just as we are in his hands when he took us out of Egypt and when God performed all the wonders and miracles for our ancestors in the desert, so are we in God's hands today. As much as we put our hands in our employers and in the medical experts, you look at a coronavirus when nobody knows and nobody's exactly figured out what to do and governments have lost everything, we realize, ultimately, put, remind ourselves whose hands we are actually in. We're in The loving, divine hands of Hashem. And although all Jewish festivals are joyous holidays, Sukkot is particularly joyful. In fact, how do we refer to it in our davening? Or tomorrow we'll say B'ahava kodesh. We refer to it as our time of joy, of celebration. Historically, Why is this more so a time of celebration than other holidays? Well, firstly, we know that we just came from Yom Kippur when God forgave our ancestors for the Chet Egel, the sin of the golden calf. And so Sukkot, coming just five days later, gives us reason to rejoice, to celebrate that atonement, that forgiveness. Every year on Yom Kippur... God atones for our sins. God grants us a new year of goodness. Please God a sweet good year, right? Good. Everything coming from God is good, but sweet reminds us that not only should it be good in God's eyes, but we should feel indeed how good it is. The bee gives things and the bee gives honey. We ask God that we should only experience the honey, not the stings. Even if the stings have some kind of divine good purpose, we only want the honey. Or perhaps it tells us how we have to transform the stings of life, the challenges, the difficulties that we encounter and turn them into honey. If someone does something, if if we don't like what someone does to us, it stings, well, let's try not to do that to others. We could turn it into honey. So it's about personal self-transformation. And so, every year in Yom Kippur, after we're forgiven for all our sins, and we know we're confident we're going to have a good year, well, on Sukkot we celebrate that blessing of God for a good year. We rejoice that God is giving us the good that we are know that we know we're in for for the coming year. So there's a lot, there's plenty for us to be celebrating. And so we do. That sukkah is the time we're going to celebrate. And of course, the intense connection that we forged with God in Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, now we have this torrent of joy during sukkah where we feel the blessing. We feel the blessing in our lives. Chassidus explains that the joy is a state of revelation. We see this in the fact that we're in a state of joy. Whenever you're joyous, we open up more about our secrets. So, this is a time for us to celebrate. We're confident, we know it's going to be good, we know we've been forgiven, and we just know it's going to be a good year ahead. Sukkot is also called Chagah Asif, the festival of gathering. It's a time of joy because it falls during in Israel, in the autumn season. Here, moving into summer. But, in the northern hemisphere, it's when Jews in Israel would gather their harvest for indoor storage. Now what's interesting is, on Pesach, there's no mention of the Torah to rejoice. Why? Because the crops are not fully ripe. On Shavuis, Shavuos, the Torah instructs us to celebrate, to rejoice, but only once. This is because the crops are harvested, but since the crops are still in the field, not yet ready to eat, our joy can't, it can't really be complete. On Sukkot, we have twice the instruction in the Torah to celebrate, to rejoice. Now that the crops are in our homes, ah! Now we could relax. Now we could truly rejoice over our bounty, and you know this concept that seems a little bit foreign because most of us aren't really working in agriculture. The harvest and the gathering of the crops, but they they still play us a role on a spiritual level. On Pesach, our ancestors had emuna; they had true, simple faith. God emancipated them from their slavery in Egypt. But they were not yet given the mitzvahs with which to serve Hashem. This is like having crops in the field that are not yet ripe. On Shavuos, we received the mitzvahs God gave us the commandments. But we didn't yet have a chance to actually fulfill them. They were given to us, but we had not yet made them our own through actually fulfilling them. And this is equivalent to harvesting the ripened crop. But the crop is still in the field and not yet in our homes. Ah, now comes Sukkos. Sukkos. After all these months, since Shavuos, that we had the opportunity, the chance to observe the mitzvahs, now we could say that we have brought the Torah way of life into our homes. We've made it our own. And this, you could say, is like the gathering of the crops into the home. And though our ancestors indeed committed a terrible sin during this time, they worshipped the golden calf, they betrayed God in the ultimate act of infidelity. The fact that they did teshuva, that they repented, and that God granted the forgiveness on Yom Kippur, that demonstrates that we can remain true to the Torah under all conditions, even with the greatest temptations. And this is a reason Truly rejoice. That's an insight the Rebbe gave on this concept of the celebration being mentioned in the Torah only once for Shavuos, not at all for Pesach, but twice for Sukkot. So that's another aspect. And I guess you could also say that when you when we bring in hopefully a bountiful harvest, then it's easy to grow haughty. Sometimes people could get egocentric. Forget the source that God's provided it. And that's why God gave us a festival to thank Him with humility for all the generosity that God provides us with. We move into our sukkahs, we realize we ought to be a little humble. We come from humble beginnings. And Medrash tells us that for these first 14 days of the year, there's absolutely no time for any Jew to commit any sins. First 10 days of the year, we're so busy. Think about it. Everybody's doing teshuva, atoning for their sins. The next four days, we're consumed with preparing for sukkahs. What are we doing the last few days? Building our sukkahs, looking for the nice lulav, esrog, hadas, and There's simply no time to sin. Everybody's getting ready for yomtav. So sukkahs preparations, there's a lot more to do than just... Preparing. Personally, I know Pesach is for me a a very busy holiday that there's a lot of preparation for. But the truth is Sukkot has a tremendous amount of preparation. It's very different than many other, many of the other holidays. It's not just food preparation. We have to build our Sukkahs. We have to get everything ready. The four species, there's a lot to do. So let's talk a little bit about building our Sukkahs because personally we started building our Sukkah already. Matsyom Kippur, that's when you actually should start but let's talk about what is your sukkah require? The sukkah is an outdoor hut. You could make the walls of any kind of material that could withstand an ordinary wind. If you go over here in the neighborhood, in Glen Hazel, you got multiple sukkah centers, and they have sukkahs made of wood, of canvas, of rope, you name it, of a fiberglass. But most important is the roof. That's called the schach. That has to come from harvest foliage, that firstly grew from the ground but is no longer attached it has to have been cut from the ground or from a tree and has not been transformed into any kind of vessel also remember your sukkah has to be directly under the skies it cannot be under a tree cannot be under overhang if you live in a building and you, you have a balcony, a porch if there's a cover above you that's not kosher of a place for a sukkah it has to be directly under the sky now the schach there should be enough of it that the sukkah has more shade than sunlight. A lot of people make the schach light enough for the stars to be visible in the sukkah at night, that it's a, that it's visibly a diras are, a temporary dwelling. The Chabad custom actually is to pile a lot of schach, thick layer, but not thick enough to prevent raindrops from dripping through. So you want it to be, on the one hand, Quite permanent that you're comfortable to sit in the sukkah throughout the festival, but at the same time, it should be temporary enough that the raindrops could come through. What do you use for schach? Well, you use bamboo branches, very common, or palm fronds. Um, There's there's a lot of options, and there's actually permanent schach that you could get these days here in the shops. Bamboo roll up mats. As long as it was made specifically for schach, not for any other purpose. You can't buy those things that they sell on Mother Drive that are bamboo mats that were made for, uh, gate coverings. That's not allowed. Now, the sukkah has to have at least two and a half walls. And what's interesting is, the halacha is ideally a sukkah should have four walls. If you look at the word sukkah, how it's spelled out, right, the samach has got four walls. So the ideal would be for your sukkah to have four walls. The cuff has three walls So that's your second best option Third option is like the third letter of the word sukkah hey, Which is two and a bit of a wall And even that is kosher enough for a sukkah So you could build your sukkah anywhere As long as it's under the clear sky You could use the walls of your house And whatever it takes to use the walls For your sukkah Great, go ahead and a lot of people have a custom of beautifying the sukkah with art, with draperies with uh, lights with decorative ornaments and of course this shows that we're celebrating and you're you really love and cherish the sukkah at the same time, just to make you aware Chabad custom is to leave the sukkah walls beer, and the idea is that the mitzvah itself is the most potent beautifier of the sukkah we'll be right back and we'll talk about the Arba Minim, the four species that we gather for Sukkot. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back to Soul to Soul, right here on 101.9. Hi SM, I'm ravi Ari It's great to be with you here today. Getting ready for Sukkot, going from the days of awe to the days of joy. You fasted, and now it's time to feast and celebrate. Let's look at the next aspect of the sukkah celebrations. We talked about building your sukkah. We talked about the significance of the sukkah. Now let's talk about the Arbanim, meaning the four species. The Torah tells us to gather four species of vegetation. In fact, the words of the Torah, L'kachtem l'chem, you take for yourselves on the first day, pre-eits hadar, the fruit of a beautiful tree. Kapos Tamarim, date palm fronds, and it goes on to tell us about the, the Arve Nachal, the willows of the brook, and the, oh, I skipped one, the Hadas, which is the myrtle, and you should rejoice before Hashem your God for these seven days. That's the verse of the Torah in Vayikra. So what are these four species? Well, the pre Hadar, or sages tell us that's the Esrog, the citron fruit. Then we have the lulav, which is a palm frond. We have the hadas, the myrtle branches. And arava, which is a willow branch. Let's talk exactly how to do this, because you need to have it ready for tomorrow. Although you're only going to use it Sunday morning, but you got to have it ready before Shabbos. So, you want to go shopping today or tomorrow latest for it. And I don't know how much stock will be left in the shops, so make sure you get there as soon as possible. The esrog is a unique fruit. It's like part of the lemon family. It grows in warm climates. Commonly from, well, Calabria is Italy. Or a lot of esrogim come from Israel. And Morocco. So the esrog has to be complete. No holes, no missing sections. I mean, if it has any of that, it's not going to be kosher. If the esrog comes with a pitum, a pitum is that small bulbous stem at the top. The pitil must remain intact for the esrog to be kosher. Now, the esrog, when it comes off the tree, is usually green at first, but turns yellow over time. Now, it's kosher to have a green esrog, but a yellow esrog is more ideal, it's more preferable. The Torah calls the esrog, pre-e'tsadr, it's a beautiful fruit. And therefore, many Jews, you'll even see now, even despite the coronavirus, which again, I must caution everyone, really still don't let your guard down. Even for a beautiful mitzvah, God wants our lives to take precedence. You'll still see many people carefully sifting through the asrogam and selecting the most beautiful specimen. People looking with their magnifying glasses to make sure it doesn't have any spots that would be in a, that would make it ugly. We look for one That that's really nice and pretty and attractive shape that has hopefully fewer blotches or no blotches, ideally. The lulav is a branch of the palm tree. Now, you look at a lulav that has many layered branches that hug the central stem. The lulav should stand straight rather than bending in any direction, not forward, not right or left. Also, its branches should hug the stem Rather than pull away from the stem, if it's pulling away from the stem, that's not a kosher lulav. So, just some pointers of what to look out for when you're going to the shop to buy your lulav and esrog if you haven't yet. Now, you're going to look for willows, the willow and the myrtle, the aravas and the hadasim. They should have at least fifty-one percent of their leaves in them. This is brought down in Shulchan Aruch. The hadas requirements are actually a little bit more complicated. If most of the hadas clusters lost most of their leaves, then actually it is puzzled, it is disqualified. However, if the top cluster is fully intact, then it remains kosher. So ideally, discuss it, see if there's an expert, a rabbi, someone around when you're purchasing your set to make sure you're buying something that is kosher. The Aravas, the willows, the the leaves are... You know they're gonna fall off with time, and therefore, you should either buy extra hadasim, uh, sorry, extra aravas, extra hadasim too. We'll talk about that. You know, the Rebbe would, I think, have thirty six hadasim on his lulav. Many people try to have more than three, at least three, six, nine, going various numbers of three. But if more than half of the leaves fell off of your willow branch then those aravas need to be replaced. And that's why people like extra Hadassim and Aravos, just in case they're going to fall off, keep them in your fridge that so remains fresh, and probably once during Cholamayit, you might need to replace them. What do we do? We take these four kinds, these four species, make sure that Erev Yomtev, tomorrow, you're going to put them together. Now, if you get the Keshalach, these basket cases, then you're going to slip the myrtle and willow the, the, into the holders, right, these, they're actually woven from the, from <coughs> excuse me, from the lulav. and you're going to put that on the bottom of the lulav, maybe, you know at least make sure it goes up, slides up at least one inch so the, idea, the way to do it is to lay the lulav on a table with the stem that green side in the middle facing up and you put the three myrtle branches into the right side of the holder and the two willow branches into the left side of the holder. And you slip the lily into the plastic sleeve to keep it fresh. And voila, you're good. Now, at the same time, being a Chabad rabbi, I think it's important to share with you that in Chabad custom, we don't use, you might notice, that the Chabad lillow sets do not have these keshach, we don't have the holders. Instead, the myrtles and the willows are actually bound directly onto the lilav using strips that are peeled from the lilav. One hadas on each side of the lilav, each covered by an arava, and then one more of the hadasim at least on the front of the lilav. Like I said, you can add extra hadasim in multiples of three and the strips of the lilav are then wound around the branches You can actually ask them here in the shop. They can send you these lulav, these rings they're called. And you want to just secure the knots tightly around on the lulav. And you're good to go. Your lulav set is ready to go. You should be good for yamdav. Of course, you're not going to use it until Sunday. So let's first talk about a couple other aspects of getting ready for yamdav. And then perhaps we'll go back to discussing the mitzvah of the an Asrug. So, tomorrow evening, Friday night, as always, you're going to make sure throughout the day to prepare for yamta, all the necessary preparations. Make sure your home is beautiful. Make sure your sukkah is built. Make sure you have delectable gastronomic delights and nice drinks. Get ready to celebrate the yamta beautifully. And of course, we usher in sukkahs with candle lighting. Now, it's always... Appropriate to light the candles 18 minutes before sunset, but especially because it is not just an ordinary umptive It is coming into Shabbos and you can't light after sunset. So try to light it 18 minutes before Where should you light? Ideally, it's right to light it in the sukkah. Of course, if it's not possible to for whatever reason, maybe space constraints or wind or safety considerations Then you could light your candles indoors But ideally, it should be visible, let's say, through the window, through the door, some way to see the candles from the sukkah. And the proper time, make sure to light it the right time. And if you didn't light it the right time, if you didn't light it before sunset, rather than not to light it, although regularly you have to be able to light it later. But because it's Shabbos, you cannot, and therefore, make sure you light it before the sun sets. Now, davening. It's not such a long davening. If you're going to shul, of course, each shul has its specific protocols, but if you're going to davening at home, make sure you select a nice, suitable location, whether it's near a table or in front of the wall, or a nice, good, comfortable place to sit and to stand in the appropriate places during davening. During lockdown, it was really beautiful for me to gather my children together, to have the family together in our library. We would all sing the... Shab Kabbalah Shabbos together. It was, it was really nice and special. So, if you're able to do that, gather your family around. Even if you're not going to Shul and you're not davening with a minion, it's still preferable to daven the same time as the Shul's daven. So most Shul's are davening six o'clock, a quarter past six tomorrow evening. That's the appropriate time you should be davening even at home. Now, the Mirev is going to start tomorrow at least in the Chabad tradition, we start with an abridged version of Kabbalah Shabbos. We're going to start with Mizmar Ledavid and sing khadodi. And the reason basically is because we don't want to detract from the focus of the Yom Tev, but it is still Shabbos. So you're going to sing some of the Shabbos prayers too, but not all of them. And of course, remember to say the special Amida that is for sukkahs, and insert the appropriate parts re- relevant to Shabbos. As soon as you get home, or if you are home already, you make your way into the sukkah, and all the meals, and now, what is the meaning of a meal? Generally speaking, we're talking about any time you're eating something made of grain or drinking wine. All the meals of sukkahs are to be enjoyed inside the sukkah. You can eat snacks or have drinks at home. But it's preferable to spend as much time as possible in the sukkah. In Chabad custom, we don't eat a morsel of food outside the sukkah. Even a little refreshing drink in the sukkah. If we want to study, want to do work, we do it in the sukkah. You want to take a snack in the sukkah. Many people sleep in the sukkah, even if it's not Chabad custom. Probably most people don't necessarily sleep in the sukkah anymore today. But still, just to be aware that many people do. And before eating or drinking in the sukkah, you have to make sure to say the bracha leishev ba-sukkah. The mitzvah of sukkah, you can do so whether you're eating in your own sukkah or in a friend's sukkah, even though that's a little bit more challenging this year. I know we have our shul sukkah open, but we need people to observe the physical distancing, even if socially we have to remain connected. So when you go into someone else's sukkah, Make sure, again, that you say the bracha, leishav, basukkah, as well as, uh, first time the bracha sheikh Now, of course, if there is discomfort in the sukkah, then you could go out. What's discomfort? Well, I guess there's different, different levels of discomfort. Always it rains in sukkahs, right? And if perhaps there's a stench that you definitely don't like or a mosquito infestation or can you know, whatever else it might be, then you're allowed to go indoors. But again, like I say, the Chabad customers, we remain in the sukkah despite the discomfort. So try to try to stick it through. And of course, the obligation of sukkah is binding for men, but optional for women. But nevertheless, it's a mitzvah for women to be in the sukkah and to say the brachas. And of course, you don't want to separate a family. It would be ideal for everyone to celebrate together. As we mentioned, it's commemorating our ancestors' journey across the Midbar, the Sinai Desert. And among the reasons that we celebrate their journey at this time of the year is the fact that in Israel, in the Northern Hemisphere, It's the beginning of the rain season. And if we were to take our meals indoors, when it's dry and comfortable, then perhaps say we're doing it for comfort. Stepping into the sukkah when it's not so comfortable. I can tell you as a kid growing up in New York, and it's chilly this time of the year, and it's raining, really demonstrates that we're doing this exclusively for the purpose of the mitzvah. I guess you could take it a little deeper. You know, the spring and summer when the days are long and the sun is strong, that speaks of a time of divine revelation. But the dark, cold days of winter, that is a time of divine concealment. And so bringing our festive celebrations outdoors at this time of year is our way of bringing the light and the revelation of the Torah into a world from which God is otherwise concealed. So the Sukkah brings the warmth and inspiration of our Yiddishkeit to a world growing increasingly spiritually melancholy, morose, lugubrious with that spiritual winter approaching. And so we try to do all our meals in the Sukkah. And you begin tomorrow night with Kiddush in the Sukkah. And remember, tomorrow night you have to say both parts for Shabbos and for Yom Tov and the bracha HaShachianu and after Kiddush you can wash your hands as you always would do for loaves of bread but I just want to be, I want to highlight and emphasize that on Shabbos you're not allowed to assist with the growth of vegetation and therefore you have to be careful in washing your hands not to wash on grass or on earth rather it should be done into a bucket into a sink, something that's not going to cause any type of vegetative growth and Enjoy your festive Yom meal with tremendous joy and celebration. And we'll be back in a moment. And I'll talk about special visitors you'll be having in your sukkah tomorrow evening. (laughs) (laughs) IFM 101.9 megahertz of life welcome back to soul to soul right here on 101.9 Hi fm i'm rabbi Ari and today we're talking about getting ready for sukkah celebration and tomorrow night i know you're having in your sukkah special visitors well i know with COVID regulations it might not be so realistic but these visitors they're very well sanitized trust me you know jewish mysticism teaches that the souls of seven jewish leaders visit our sukkah each day of the Yom Tov. It's explained in the Zohar. And who are they? Avraham Avinu on the first night. Of course, I'm sure he comes with his wife Sarah. And he probably comes with a whole pack with his children and grandchildren. All the Abramsons. And then the second night, it's highlighted by Yitzhak and his wife Rivka. And the third night, you better make room there of Yaakov. He's got 12 little kids, all the Jacobsons, and four wives. So, and plus Dina, you know, it's going to be a big mishpacha coming over. And each night we have another great visitor. On the fourth night, Moshe Rabbeinu. On the fifth night, Aaron Cohen, On the sixth night, Yosef HaTzadik. And on the seventh night, David Amalek. And they all come each day, actually, according to the Zohar. But each day, another one of the seven leads the pack, leads the group. And so they are called Ushpizen, which means guests. You may have seen the movie Ushpizen which is describing the... I don't even remember the movie itself. It was actually a great film, saw it years ago. So, all these visitors come to our sukkah on sukkahs. The word is shpizen is Aramaic for visitors, for guests. And it's interesting that it's on sukkahs rather than any of the other Jewish festivals. Why? Because, firstly, sukkahs, we're eating outdoors. We're in the holiness of the kedushah of our home into the outdoors as the darkness and in some places the coldness we're warming it up and so the yishpizim come to fortify us with the spiritual strength that we need for this task and if, in, in many jewish homes many people say special prayers to greet the yishpizim every day of Sukkot. and so make sure that the yishpizim feel most welcome in your home tomorrow night Another great memory I have from my childhood is Simchas Beis I described before how Sukkot is really a particularly joyous holiday. And one of the joyous features of this holiday is the nightly celebration, the dances. It's called Simchas Beis The joy of drawing the water. Back in the times of the temple, the Kahanim would pour daily wine libations onto the altar, on the Mizbeach, every single day of the year. On Sukkot, it wasn't only a wine libation, but they would also pour a water libation. The libation was poured shortly before sunrise. But the occasion was so joyous that the celebrations would begin the evening before and they lasted throughout the whole night. In my childhood growing up in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, same thing. In the evening, we would start the Simchas Vesash Eva celebration. There would be various Celebrity singers and, and and musicians and bands. Every two hours, another band would take over all the way till the morning. So back in the temple on Cholamad nights, the temple courtyard was lit up so brilliantly. The Gemara describes the entire city of Jerusalem was illuminated. And throughout the night, the sages and the leaders would dance in the temple courtyard, and the people would clap and sing. It was such a great ecstatic joy and celebration. It was a time of of great joy and and revelry. And the Levi and the Levites would play music. While the prophets would prophesy and share deep secrets of the Torah. And then before before sunrise, the Levites would sound the trumpets and the people would all parade down the mountain to the Shiloh well. You could go to Israel today and experience it. Go there and see what it looked like. Reenact it. And they would draw water. And they would then it back up to the temple. On the steps leading to the sanctuary, the Levian would sound the trumpets again, and the people, everyone would prostrate themselves before Hashem. The Kohanim would then pour the libation, and that's when the people would disperse and go home. Now, although today we can't pour these libations, but the Rebbe really encouraged that we should have outdoor dancing celebrations on the nights of Sukkot. In previous years I remember every year at Torah Academy there would be a Suhraspe Sesheva celebration, at least one night of Hallamd, and many, many communities have these large nightly celebrations with music and dancing and, and entertainment. So this year I think you're going to have to do this virtually, but it's certainly appropriate in your own home, with your family, with your children to celebrate, to dance, to sing, whether in your sukkah or in the street, wherever you can, and really experience this. And you know, at first blush, pouring water over the altar, doesn't seem, you know, to be such a profound reason for joy. But if you think about it, you see that it's a deeply meaningful and joyful occasion. You see, the two libations, the water and the wine, they represent two ways of Avodah Hashem, serving God. Wine has a really fun, wonderful aroma. We drink it, it has fine flavor. We know, we like wine, right? At the same time, water has no flavor. Nothing at all. But, water is the elixir of life. And the same thing our sages tell us. Serving Hashem is a highly enjoyable and spiritually satisfying experience. Yet, whatever fulfillment we get from our relationship with God, it's obviously finite. When we serve God purely because Hashem wants us to serve Him, rather than any self-satisfaction, that's when we touch on the ultimate meaning of life. That's when we could really experience life. And the concept of Nisuch HaMayim, the water libation, it's actually not even mentioned anywhere specifically in the Torah. It's a halacha misinai. It's mostly implied in the scripture in the Torah Shebech But Hasidus explains that this is because the revelation in Torah Shebech has to be channeled through the finite medium of the precise letters. The spiritual connection that we forge through this water libation in Nisa HaMayim transcends any limitation. So, my friends, we have to tap into the meaning of this and experience that in our lives. That, of course, like we said before, we activated our deepest bond with God through the Yom Narayim, the days of and Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur, we entered our souls holy of holies, so to speak. But it was an intensely private and intimate moment. Now comes Sukkot's, we move our celebrations outside. We bring the depth of our soul, the pinnacle of our bond of God, out into the open. At this pinnacle level, we connect with Hashem for reasons that transcend our personal satisfaction and gain. This revelation, as it was represented by the Nisa hamaim, by the libation of water, that stimulates such profound joy that we can't sit still. We have to sing and dance. We're moved to great joy and celebration. So, experience it and rejoice and celebrate. Well, early in the morning, on the first day of Sukkot we have to do the mitzvah of the Arba Minim. But this year, it's Shabbos, so that's going to happen on the second day. You got to take the the four species that we discussed or before, you take it in every single day except for Shabbos and hold it together. The best time to do this is first thing in the morning. Okay, and ideally in the sukkah. Before breakfast, it's such an easy, quick mitzvah. Just go into your sukkah and hold a lulav upright in your right hand with the stem, the green side facing you. The esrug should be within easy reach. Leave it on the table. First say your bracha alna the lulav. Look inside your sitter. You'll see the bracha there. Then you lift the esrug in your left hand. Okay, and you're going to say, the Bracha shechianu only on the first day, by the way. The just, it's it's a Bracha that reminds us that that the joy that we feel in performing a mitzvah for the first time. So we say the Bracha shechianu, And after you say the Bracha, put the Esrog and the Lulav together in your right hand. And, well, the Lulav in your right hand, the Esrog in your left hand, but put the two hands together. And what we're going to do now is shake, I should say rather wave, because when I say shake, sometimes people tend to Give it a nice shake. It actually makes it unkosher afterwards. And you're going to wave it in the various, in all the directions. So it's actually customary not just to wave it, but in all directions. So we reach out and first we're going to do it three times to the right and back to our heart. Three times to the left, back to our heart. Three times forward, back to our heart. Three times up, three times down and three times backward, each time bringing it back to your heart. Now, of course, this is our way of proclaiming that we received a positive decree for a good year. And the Gemara says that as victorious armies march with their swords held high, we look a little bit like Star Wars here. So we also lift our lulav and celebrate the victory in the judgment that God gave us and granted us a good year, hopefully. And, of course, that since this is the gathering of the harvest season, so when we gather in a plentiful crop, we're in danger of growing boastful in our joy because look what I achieved, look what I accomplished. So to ensure our gratitude and our humility to Hashem, We gather four pleasing species that gladden the heart and we hold them aloft in gratitude to Hashem. Another reason is that Tzuka celebrates the wondrous gift that God gave our ancestors when God took them from the uninhabitable wilderness and settled them finally after 40 years in Eretz Yisrael. So to celebrate this, we take four of the most plentiful species in Israel, which are pleasant in their appearance and in fragrance and they keep fresh and green for the seven days of the Yom Tiv, and we hold them together in joy and gratitude to Hashem as Rambam explains. Another explanation is that the four species teaches us to serve God with our complete being. The Esrug represents a heart. The Lila represents the spine. The Myrtle leaves they represent our eyes. Just look at them how they look. And the willow looks like our lips. So the message is that a mitzvah is only complete when it's fulfilled with every aspect of our being. And that's a fascinating insight that comes from the Medrash. She tells us that the Esrug atones for inappropriate feelings in our heart. The hadas, the Myrtle, atones for looking at inappropriate scenes. And the Arava, atones for speaking inappropriate words. And the lulav represents us, our la l'ashamayim, our, that we are standing tall, erect, proud, towards Hashem. So, the mitzvah of the four species has a very important message of unity as well. I'm sure you've heard this many times. But it's worthwhile repeating, the esrik has a delicious taste and just put it to your nose, a very pleasing aroma. And this represents one who studies Torah and does good deeds. The lulav, coming from a day tree, which has taste, but no smell. So this represents one who studies Torah, which creates, which which has taste, but there's no aroma of the good deeds. Versus the myrtle, the hadas, which has that pleasing aroma, but no taste. And that represents somebody... Creates a wonderful environment of the good deeds of the with the torah with the mitzvahs they do. And the will of the Arava has neither of them. I think the, the the Arava must have caught the coronavirus. It has no smell, no taste. And this represents a Jew who has no good deeds, no Torah study. But by taking them all together, we are reminding ourselves that we need each up that we need each other. And God atones for our sins. When we all come together. So we know this mitzvah cannot be complete. Even if one of them is missing. And likewise, if one Jew is missing, if one Jew is lacking, then regardless whether they're an esrach or a Arava, we are incomplete. And so each of the four species represents unity. The lulav branches hug the stem. The leaves of the hadas grow in bundles of three. The Arava is called Ahlina, which means, the Gemara explains, it means brotherly, because they grow in unison. And the Esrog encompasses all things, because it could grow through all seasons of the year, unlike any other fruit. So since true unity is only possible when we're truly humble, and true Bittal, true sublimation, is only possible when we're standing before Hashem, This tells us that we take these of these four species, there's an intense revelation of godliness that forges a deep unity among us, among all Jews coming together. And the Medrash explains that during the Aseris he made Teshuvah. The Teshuvah of a yachid, of an individual, is accepted as if it were from the cloud, from the whole community. During the days between Yom Kippur and Sukkot, there are no averas, like we said before. There's no need, so to say, for teshuva. Since Sukkot is described as Rishon L'Chesh Ben it's the beginning when people might start slacking off. That's why it's necessary for us to emphasize this idea of achtas, of Jewish unity, through making what's called a echas, by bringing everyone together. Our individual teshuva will be considered a teshuva's rabbin, a repentance for all coming together and certainly when we're united, nothing can break us. And it seems like right here we're going to have to conclude today's discussion. I'm going to wish you all a wonderful and enjoyable sukkahs. Hope you have a great time and just a closing thought. You know, joyful occasions are really most enjoyed when celebrated with family and with friends. And the more joyous the occasion, more people around. And, you know, it's hard to imagine a wedding with a few attendees. Unfortunately, during Corona, that's the way it's been. This year, some of us are challenged with with celebrating the happiest days and the calendar surrounded, some with only family, some with nobody. You know, some are completely alone. And this could be very difficult. So I want to conclude with sharing with you that Judaism teaches that challenges are actually opportunities. Before God presents us with a challenge, God fortifies us with the ability to overcome the challenge. So this year more than ever, God will be at our side as we rejoice in Sukkot. We might not be in the company of others, but we will be in God's company. God will suffuse our hearts with gladness and our souls with joy. And if we if we believe this fervently, and if we visualize God at our sides, we will be able to meet this challenge and any other challenge with courage and enjoy a most happy and joyous succus. So from the bottom of my heart, I want to wish you all a joyous and happy succus. Carpe diem. See you please God next week. Good yantov.